0: Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphen It's for September 2014. I am writer, hyphen critic, hyphen Village Roadshow piracy mascot, Lee Zachariah. And with me as always is.
1: <laughs> Hi there, everybody. I'm writer, hyphen director, hyphen enforced upon you all U2 album, Paul Anthony <laughs> Nelson.
0: And joining us for our very next segment, we have a very special guest, Lynn Shelton. But before we get to her, the films of September. 2014. Now, Paul, I think you'll agree with me that if 2014 will be remembered for anything, it's being the year of past their use by date prequels to hyper stylized Frank Miller adaptations from a decade ago starring Eva Green in various states of undress. Bang. <laughs> It's it's a weird genre. There are literally <coughs> hundreds of films. Okay, there are two.
1: One of them is called Hundreds something. <laughs> That's true. Um, no,
0: hot on the heels of 300 Rise of an Empire, Sin City, a dame to kill for. Oh,
1: no. The same year. It's, so, it's such a weird it, double. It really is. And they should go both go back to the funny pages. There's a time and a place for
0: everything, isn't there? And that time <coughs> was clearly ten years ago. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm starting to think that sadly, because I was once a devotee, of Robert Rodriguez's entire career but I'm starting to think that maybe Robert Rodriguez's best time was 10 (laughs) years ago. Nothing about this film feels remotely relevant. Um, But In the way and I I, I'm a huge fan of the original Sin City and I realise that with, you know, Frank Miller's writing a lot of it can be termed yeah, it can be seen as as misogynistic and Mm. reductive and sort of, you know, fascist or whatever. But this film really revels in it in a way that the first Sin City didn't. Like the first Sin City I just remember the first Sin City being a lot cooler. Mm. Like this is so uh, so passe and so wildly misogynistic and so just endlessly cartoonishly violent. Like, I can't remember the last time I had violence fatigue in a film. Yeah. I felt like a 60-year-old. I felt like sitting there going, <laughs> well, they, I just wish they'd stop killing each other. Like, Why Why does this keep going? Yeah. How many heads and hands can you see hacked off? Like, I just found it really, really dreary and tedious. There are a handful of things I liked about it if pressed, but... Yeah. It, I, I can think
0: of something I liked about it. Yeah. I think the story that they wrote specifically for this one, mm. the Joseph Gordon-Levitt one, I think that, you know, it had its failings, but as a, as a story, as a narrative, I thought it was really interesting.
1: Yeah, I think I was less interested in the narrative and more interested in Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I loved his performance, um, as I often do. But uh, it was,
0: the film wasn't a complete write-off. Yeah. It but was that, just very close to one.
1: Yeah, oh, yeah. Like... I, I mean, I couldn't think of a movie in which Josh Brolin didn't work for me until I saw this. Yeah, like, he's really ordinary in this. It's like yeah. screw up your face and argh. and that whole story. I mean, I mean, bless Eva Green, she commits herself and she's really mm. good, but uh, that whole story is so problematic. Like, mm. it's just really, really not great and. The whole Jessica Alba goes to Bruce Willis thing, yeah. um, just tedious. Um, but yeah, the, the Joseph Gordon-Levitt story is by far the best thing about the film. Um, you know, I, and there there are there are sort of half a dozen Gonzo shots that look kind of interesting, but the rest of it just looks really, really poor. Like just poor visual and and editing choices, yeah. and the kind of things that Rodriguez would have been all over ten, fifteen years ago. I, I feel like his films feel uh, where they used to feel in, unbridled enthusiasm, I feel now they're now very cynical. Mm. I just feel like cynical, empty, ham-fisted jokes. And I, I don't He's know. He's going through the,
0: the motions. He's yeah. got the Spy Kids thing. He's got Machete. He's mm. got Sin City. He's got his TV shows. You know, he, it's just it's this OCD sequelizing Mm. uh, rather than creating something new. Look, I, I also love the first Sin City. I wonder if that was to do with the time it came out. No Mm. one was doing anything like that at the time. And uh, I'm, I'm almost afraid to revisit it because this one's put such a bad taste in my mouth. Like I'm, because we we felt the first one was a very knowing postmodern, mm. ultra sexy, ultraviolet take on the conventions of film noir, and now I'm really worried that we were being overly kind to it and ascribing <laughs> an an intelligence that might not have been there.
1: I think that is a little bit of a fear, but then I think of things like the first film just had this weirdness to it. It was like the whole character of Yellow Bastard. Mm. of it was so bizarre and so kind of out of the box and you know willis uh willis's performance seemed to fit the whole noir thing and his voice sounded great it sounded like a great noir hero and yeah. you know mickey rourke's character is introduced in that film was this you know great sort of you know lovable crazy lug and and you know you had the Elijah Wood being genuinely creepy yeah. and like there was so much more going for the first film and the girls of Old Town led by Re- uh, Rosario Dawson seem to have much more agency in the first film than they're doing this and mm. uh, I just I don't know I just yeah no I think this yeah. film is just genuinely bad yeah
0: I I would have to agree with you and and yes it's his best film since shorts in my opinion because <laughs> <laughs> man he's made some shockers but I like I w- the
1: first machete. I will stand by the first machete, but that's about it. Fair enough. I
0: want to cast your mind back to the very optimistic year of 2012 when uh, we discussed the films of Wong Kar Wai on this show. And uh, I looked up his next film, The Grand Master, and said, I think we're going to get this by Christmas. That's what it says. <laughs> end of the year. End of 2012. Yeah. It's now, um, you know, midway, just past midway. Three quarters, three of, the quarters of the way. Three quarters of the way. be kind. Through... Uh, 2014, and we've finally got the Grandmaster. We've finally seen it. The premise of What If Wong Kar Wai directed a Kung Fu movie is a very tantalising one. It was
1: almost worth the wait, and I only say that because two and three-quarter years is a hell of a long time to wait. I (laughs) adored this film. It absolutely... It, it, it restored Wong Kar Wai to his position as cinema's prime sensualist.
0: Okay, yeah. The
1: way he deals in moments and emotions and just... it, it It's melodrama on an epic, almost metaphysical scale. Right. Um, and it just looks so gorgeous and every, it gives everything this kind of weight that you just want to swim in it. I also thought the fight scenes were kick-ass pardon the pun but just really a really um beautiful tactile and you know uh, film and and yeah the, the the bruising fight scenes i love the um, i mean i love tony Lung in everything yeah. so you know he's he's terrific mm-hmm. but i like the way the film is so dialed in to it because it's the story of Ip Man, selected highlights from the life of Ip Man, who is the man who trained, went on to train Bruce Lee and kind of revolutionised Wing Chun in the history of martial arts and, and what have you, and Kung Fu, essentially. I love how the film is so dialled into his point of view that when he becomes obsessed with this woman who is... An incredible figure in in, in herself and um, deserves her own film. But when he becomes obsessed with her, the film becomes obsessed with her as well. And we just follow her for about half an hour and we barely pay attention to what Ipman is doing. And it's like the film almost takes his point of view. He's consumed with her and so we're consumed with her. And I found that really interesting wow, structurally. Wow, I really
0: prefer your reading of that to mine. Like, <laughs> for me, it was like, I felt the film was unfocused and I wasn't engaged by the story or the character. But, you know, to me, the the film, if it worked as anything, it was edited highlights. It was a showreel of um, some of the most gorgeous action sequences I'd ever seen mm-hmm. and typically astounding cinematography. Um, and so just on that, that level, I enjoyed it, but... The way you're describing that, I, I really like that. I like that take on it. I just
1: it, it it got me within five minutes. This film had me in the palm of its hand, and mm. I never left. I I said at the time, like it does get a, you know a bit more sort of involved in, but particularly the first hour of the film, I could just watch on a loop. Mm. I just I just found it so visceral and lush and you know funny at times mm. and deeply romantic and. I mean, it's all the things I love about Wong Kar Wai plus Kung Fu. Yeah, yeah. How can you hate that? (laughs) So, um,
0: back when we talked about uh, Jodorowsky on the show, uh, Zach had actually seen Jodorowsky's Dune, the documentary about the film he never made, uh, but we hadn't. But now it's come out. We have seen it. And I have to say, I'm almost glad he never made the film because I don't think the film could ever be as good (laughs) as the story of how great it might have been.
1: Yeah. Or um, well, how great he thought it was going to be.
0: Well, yeah, it's that passion. Like nothing can replace that. Pa- the um, the way he makes you imagine the perfect film yep. he would have made is just no film could ever have matched that. And I I, I, I love this doco. You know, if if nothing else, it it does a lot of things really really well. But the primary thing it does is give us an insight into the untempered passion of Jodorowsky. It's so
1: addictive. Um. If anything, that's, th- this documentary is a testament to that. Mm. I came out of this film thinking, no film about a failed project should be this inspiring. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? Like, the whole film is about how, you know, you had this amazing idea, and they never quite got the money, and never and stuff never quite came together, and then Hollywood kind of strip mined it, and it's like, it should be the worst film ever. And instead, you come out thinking... This man is a true artist. I wish I was a true artist. I wanna make awesome films like this guy. Like it's just it's and it's just the pure personality of this man. Just this he's, you know, like he's a cult figure in the true sense of the word, I think. He's mm. such a deeply um interesting, thoughtful, funny, bizarre. Charismatic figure, yeah. and the film itself sounds astonishing. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's a, it's a really well made doco. It's yeah. beautifully put together. It's got um, an interesting bunch of talking heads, and you know the story. I want one of those books. When a oh god, going to publish that. Huge dossier that is got of all the all the uh, storyboards. And I will they, buy enough copies arts.
0: for them to break even. I can <laughs> I can guarantee that. Like just
1: do it, please. They need to. It's yeah. There's some there's some amazing stuff there. But it's yeah. It's all powered by this uh, this madman that is Alejandro Jodorowsky.
0: Mm, absolutely.
1: <laughs> uh, another film that came out this
0: month. I want to end on a high. Although, no segue. What's going on? I know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I thought if I didn't have an awkward segue, I wouldn't be mocked. But hey,
1: we'll prove that wrong. Life always finds a way. What We Do in
0: the Shadows. Yes. Uh, first of all, I just want to say, so this is a uh, new film from uh, uh, Jermaine Clement and Tiki, oh, Taika
1: Waititi. Uh, thank you. Um, and Taika Waititi, of course, uh, wrote and directed "Boy" from 2010, which is sublime. And Jermaine Clement, of course, one half of uh, "Flight of the Concords.
0: And they've made a film called "What We Do in the Shadows," a mockumentary about a share house full of vampires. First of all, I just have to give massive props for actually getting the mockumentary format right. I'm so sick of seeing yes. the format lazily tossed aside. That the fact that they understand how to do it makes this film worthwhile. Like from on that right. alone. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because I know you. That's a big bugbear with with you, and yeah. a lot with me too. And and the, yeah, they, they never break characters, it. do they? No, they never, they never break characters. They never There's get a, a shot reason. from a place where you couldn't get a shot. They never exactly. You know, it's it's never cut between two angles that you know one or two cameramen couldn't possibly. Yeah. Traverse. And there's a profound
0: understanding of why they're there. And it's just, they get that totally Mm. right. On top of that, and probably more importantly, (laughs) the film is achingly funny. I can't even tell you how much of it I missed. Like, there is at least one full scene I missed because I was still laughing from the previous scene. Uh, And that's, there are very few comedies you can say that about. But it's also so effortless. The comedy is Mm. so effortless.
1: You know, I hate it when comedies look like they're trying. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, they're not one. gurning, are they? It's no. just so... And it's got a really deft touch with character. Like, mm. I thought this was a really good character movie, particularly in regards to um, Taika's character, mm. okay. um, Vlado, and, um, you know, the, the kind of... The love of his life, that sort of plot they, they engineer through there. Yeah. And... You know, and other characters who are trying to be cool and trying to keep up and, and finding themselves left behind and you know, and they're meant to be these super cool creatures of the night. And mm. they're just as dorky and flawed <laughs> as everyone else. So many great jokes in this film. I can't remember the last time I found a film this funny. It's yeah, uh, yeah I, I just thought great spin on the format, uh, great spin on vampire tropes in terms of uh, things you never think of. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and given
0: how many you
1: know, yes, so many iterations there are on this thing. Yeah.
0: It's and they've found a new <laughs> angle on it, which is amazing in itself. It's quite astonishing. Um, and also, you think, where, where is the last place on earth you would set a vampire thing? <laughs> Wellington. You would think Wellington. <laughs> and yet, this is another thing that's impressive and, uh, and, and plays into Australia's long-standing but never admitted to jealousy of New Zealand, is uh, certain aspects of it, particularly the film industry... Uh, this film could only have been made in New Zealand, yeah I mean that's that's pretty that's pretty
1: cool i i 've got this theory that it's the one of the hardest subgenres to master is the horror comedy, and I think New Zealand have mastered it I think almost yeah. every time New Zealand have a swing in a horror comedy they nail it you know yeah. if you're looking at everything from from this to also housebound which is out this year which is which is really cool to you know peter jackson's brain dead yeah. to you know even something as silly as black sheep yeah, as yeah. to you know like they're always a lot of fun and mm. like whereas australia almost always fumbled the horror comedy ball mm. but and you know, and America do most of the time as well. But um, yeah, the the Kiwis just nail it. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not sure why that is. It's <laughs> they're kind of what do they know? Dry, deadpan sense of humour with massive amounts of gore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I thought this film was absolute killer, <laughs>
0: literally Limit- and figuratively. <laughs> there, the ratio and quality of laughs both very high. That's the highest compliment you can pay a comedy. Yeah. We are now joined uh, by a very special guest for this month, uh, director Lynn Shelton. Lynn, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. It's our pleasure. And uh, we thought it would be interesting uh, to talk about filmmakers with or without style. And we, we don't mean, you know, in the e-red carpet sense of, of style, but filmmakers who have a distinct... Uh, noticeable um, authorial voice and we tend to canonize those people we tend to praise people who who have a uh, consistency throughout their films but we tend to judge filmmakers who try something completely different each time and it feels like that's the more creative choice and i was wondering do you guys also feel that this is something that we do as 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 film appreciators that we're uh, we're a little harsher on people who jump around
2: I think that that's a, that's a fair assessment. I mean, your assessment is fair of what happens, but it's an unfair practice mm, that absolutely. You know, people, I absolutely think that directors who are more chameleon-like um, are given short shrift. And, and I agree that there is something, it's risky, but it's also, it, it makes sense to me that it's more appropriate creatively. If you if you dive into a new genre that you've never approached before and the specificity of, of a story, you know, that's different from any other, hopefully um, story that you've done before, or just that, you know, you're trying to find that that each, each project deserves its own kind of uh, world, you know, its own look and its own style. and So a director is able to fully, dive into whatever is required of that particular script and that particular story and then and and sort of subvert their own obsessive mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know because we do we do all have as artists you know you tend to have things that you you love to gravitate towards or that you just kind of naturally like things in your own tool bag that have worked for you before, and so you'll you'll use them again, you know, no matter what the story is. But it makes sense to me that there, there's something very pure about being able to just dive into each project anew, you know, and, and allow that as an opportunity to be reborn yourself as an artist in a way, you know?
1: I absolutely agree. Um, but from, I guess, the critical standpoint, um, we've all become so obsessed with the quote-unquote auteur theory that anybody with a with a wildly divergent style from film to film, somebody that, as you say, hits kind of creative reset each and every time, is sort of seen as like a journeyman, as kind of like there's no thematic voice from one film to another. And it's quite disparaging because as you say those obsessions are there you know you you just have to dig a little deeper it's not as in your face you'll usually
2: find if you do look more closely that there are there are things that um that connect i mean one example i mean i don't know if you would agree with me but i feel like sydney lumet might be a good example oh, of someone mm. who really does and and i think part of it is he's talked a lot about how he really believes in the collaborative nature of the work, right? And so that will, that will open you up even more. If you're, if you are open to the people that you're working with and their creative ideas, there's even more, you know, when you're trying to create something that's greater than the sum of its parts, you know, then you're, you're going to be even more open to a kind of a, um, a wild shift, perhaps wild seeming shift of style from project to project. But if you look at his work as a body the thing, the thing that is always there is this unbelievable work with actors, right? So he's able to, he's, he has some sort of incredible magic where he can unleash this amazing performance. And, and granted, he works with amazing actors, but um, you know, as I think somebody quoted, I remember somebody saying something about how he has the ability to take good actors and make them into great actors or allow, you know, and, and allow mm-hmm. that space or somehow help unlock that performance. That extra special performance, but um, I mean, Dog Day Afternoon is one of my favorite films, uh, absolutely in my top five list of films ever. Mm. And look at that film next to, you know, Twelve Angry Men, or you know, I mean, it's yeah. just yeah, amazing. the whiz I never gets it was necessarily the same director, and yet you know, there there is the the top quality. You know, I guess is the is the is right the thing that binds them.
0: So, so do you ever feel that? Uh, compunction yourself, because, I mean, they're not uh, identical films by any stretch, but I can see from, you know, Hump Day to Your Sister's Sister to Touchy Feely, you know, I can identify the Lynn Shelton style. Is there a moment where you wake up and suddenly go, I want to make a a Coen Brothers film or uh, a Wes Anderson film or a a Christopher Nolan, you know, I just want to go completely off the rails and do something else? You know, are you consciously... Uh, hanging on to, or not hanging on to, that's a terrible way to put it. Are you you consciously uh, maintaining this style from film to film?
2: You know, I think I do think about, I wonder what people will perceive. I mean, for me, I go into a project and really like, for instance, I've worked with the same, a lot of the same collaborators specifically. uh, I mean, the one through line, I think in all my films has been um, Benjamin Kasulke, my director of photography. And and we will, um, we have this little ritual where, where we'll talk usually via email at first and then, and then, you know, sort of build on it and share our lists. After we have a script, we'll talk about ideas of, of other people or other films that might be an interesting, you know, um, reference, or, you know, and we start sort of building a vocabulary. And it's different for every film. It's not like, like we use the same films. Like, for instance, mm-hmm. my very first feature was when we started this ritual and the two we ended up with. Uh, as reference points for us were Lynn Ramsey and Ozu. <laughs> like it's a completely polar opposite, but we were sort of like, okay, so this is an Ozu moment, right? Yeah, it's totally an Ozu <laughs> moment. You know? and, uh, and this is totally a Ramsey moment. Yeah. We we were like, wanted to wear bracelets that said, you know, what would Lynn Ramsey do? Um, WWLR. <laughs> D. Um, but anyway, and of course, the movie itself ended up being, I don't think you would necessarily recognize either of those influences in there. But for us, it was because we, it was, it was through the, you know, we kind of used those as a reference point And then it went through the filter of our own creative impulses, right? Mm. But we've never used those. I don't think we've ever used those references again. Each time it's a new, it's a new set of references. And and so we'll have a little film festival and we'll watch a bunch of movies, and we'll talk about how. Oh yeah, yeah, we like this aspect, but not not this part of it. You know, just sort of we'll mm. sort of parse out what we like, and then we'll just toss the whole thing out the window, and then try to make a movie that's just ours. But but at least it's given us a a, a starting point of kind of communication because sometimes sometimes words fail you right when you're trying to yeah. communicate cinematically with your collaborators about this cinema in the cinematic language. You kind of have to use cinematic language yeah. in order to communicate properly. And I do often wonder I remember Touchy Feely making Touchy Feely. It was it was the first time in a while that I just I basically threw handheld uh, camera out the window. It was very it was much more static uh, camera wise than than I'd done and much wider shots. And a lot of you know, there sort of I did try to break out and yet and and I trusted. And so for me, it's like as a goal, I kind of I do have, I think it's because I do cling, I mean, I'll totally confess to clinging to this idea that I would like to be <laughs> <laughs> I would like to be recognized as a notor in a way. You know, I do I do have that I would like to be able to put a Lynn Shelton stamp on whatever film I'm making. Well, even if it's like, I mean, again, like talking about Sidney Lumet, there are through lines if you look for them, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have to be a kind of a, um, I, I don't feel like I have to be a Woody Allen in, in that. You know, I don't think, I don't feel like I have, every film has to feel, although even he has had films that don't necessarily seem like a Woody Allen film. You know, mm-hmm. he's broken out and tried different styles too. So I don't know. Is there is there a single director you guys can think of who really feel – they've never made a single film that's that's a little bit outside of their oeuvre, you know? I mean, if you look at somebody like Altman or, you know, it's people with really signature styles. Mm-hmm. Maybe Wes Anderson. Has he ever made a movie that didn't feel like a Wes Anderson
0: movie? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's it. I mean, he, he – Bottle when Rocket, he, I guess. Bottle Rocket, yeah.
2: Which is actually, I think, my favourite Wes Anderson
0: <laughs> <laughs> But what you say is quite heartening because it, it almost turns me completely around on the topic because it makes me think that – uh, if You know, with the uh, Ozu thing or the Lynn Ramsey thing, if you set out to make, I don't know, just looking at my DVD shelf, a Quentin Tarantino film, that it would still look like a Lynn Shelton film because it's constantly filtered through your voice. And maybe that's why we praise filmmakers with distinct voices, because uh, they can't help but uh, create works through their own eyes.
2: Yeah. I mean, and when you see, I doubt you've seen my latest movie yet, right? It it hasn't
0: come out here yet. Right.
2: And so Laggies was the big test for me because it's somebody else's script. It was one of those very rare exceptions where I read a, a, um, a script that I connected personally enough with, you know, and felt like there was enough of an overlap and there was an affinity that I had with the author's voice that I felt like, oh, yeah, this feels like one of my movies. You know, it just, it's totally in my wheelhouse and the kind of relationships that are, and the characters um, that are um, therein just feel real and this humor comes from this organic character-based place and, you know, it just, it really felt like it kind of, and yet, it's a different voice. I mean, her, you know, she writes, Andrea Siegel, the writer, writes in, a, in, a, in her own voice and so we had to find that place and, and it was the process of turning it into my movie was really different, you know, Mm. then. And so I, I feel like of all the films I've made, it's probably the one that feels least like a quote unquote Lin Shelton movie. But I'm, but I'm still, you know, I'm still like the, the, the jury's still out. Like, I'm really curious to see what people think of it in, in the canon of my other films, you know, it's interesting. Mm. Um,
0: well, I'm glad yeah. we've sort of, uh, we've, we've come out in a, looking at this in a very positive way, because if we had decided that judging artists, as, you know, as their oeuvres, as, as auteurs, uh, was bad, then that's the entire premise of this show shot <laughs> and the last four and a half years, just worthless to us. <laughs> All right, Lynn. Please tell us whom have you picked for your Helen's
1: Frayvanet's Filmmaker of the Month.
2: I have chosen Claire Denis.
0: Excellent. And what and what made you uh, choose her?
2: Well, I have a really, I have a very personal fondness for her, <laughs> mm-hmm. and and a sense of um, enormous gratitude. My little Claire Denis story is that I saw her first film, Chocolat, which came out in '88 or '89, I think. Um, and it made, it made a real impact on me at the time. And, and then, you know, years went by years and years went by, I think about 15 years went by. I was, uh, I lived in New York. I started I, when I saw her first film, I was actually still an actor, a theater actor. And then quickly thereafter, soon after I saw, I, I turned into, went to um, sort of turned my artistic addiction over to photography and ended up in graduate school in New York City um, at the School of Visual Arts and got an, a degree in photography, but actually started making experimental films there and was also an editor. It was sort of my marketable skill was editing and spent a few years in New York teaching and editing and then moved and making these little small personal experimental films where I did everything on my own, you know, by myself. And was sort of developing my own aesthetics um, Just doing a a little exploration of what, what, you know, sort of thrummed with me, aesthetically speaking, and then moved back to Seattle, where I was raised um, at the end of the of the last century. And, (laughs) um, and as I and and got the opportunity to edit other people's feature films, um, narrative films, I hadn't really done that in New York. And, because it's a smaller filmmaking community, I just suddenly started finding myself direct, you know, editing, editing features and, and narrative shorts and started to realize that I really wanted to direct, um, uh, this kind of work, which hadn't, I hadn't really felt the confidence before or, or quite the desire or what would I say? You know, it had taken a long time for me to get to that point, but I didn't have any idea how to do it, you know, because I, I had gone, I'd not gone to film school. I'd gone to school, art school, you know, and was approaching film, um, as a solo artist. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know how to work with a crew. I didn't, I didn't know anything about that world really, except, you know, I I came at it, I'd come at it from the post side. So I knew about cinematic storytelling through editing, but not on the production side. So I had a lot to figure out and the money and all that stuff. I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I would, I would like to. Um, but I also didn't know if, it, would, it was really too pie in the sky. I was in my mid thirties at this point, and I was like, "Me, it's just too late for me," you know, because <laughs> most filmmakers start out, you know, especially indie filmmakers, they start out really young. Well, all filmmakers. So what happened was in two thousand three, I believe, um, Claire Denis came to Seattle, the Northwest Film Forum, this local nonprofit, um, Cinema Tech, and also you know um, support for local filmmakers. Organization. They brought her, and they did a retrospective of her work. And it was right when her latest film at the time was Vendredi soir, which is uh, Friday Night, Mm -hmm. in English. And they showed that film, and then they and then they also had you know a a week long retrospective of all her other works, which I think at the time maybe there were six or eight of them or something. And they brought her out, and they did this wonderful. On the director of the film forum interviewed her on stage, and we I watched Vendredi soir, and I heard her speak, and she talked about starting in the film industry when she was 20. I could be making this up because I didn't find it online as backing me up. But I, I thought that she said that she was an assistant to uh, Francois Truffaut in, when she was 20 years old and started working you know, um, in, in film then. And then I didn't realize I'd never sort of added this up before. But during this interview, I came to uh, find out that she was 40 years old when she directed her first feature film. And I was blown away. <laughs> <laughs> it did two things. She did two things for me. One was she fulfilled. She made me realize I could be a woman and and a filmmaker. I could be forty and start. You know, you could start a whole career as a filmmaker um, at that late date. And um, Vanzolini in particular was very inspiring to me because I'd never written a script and I was terrified of dialogue. I really wanted it to be, I'm all about naturalism and I knew that I wanted to believe that these words, whatever words were, you know, coming out of the mouths of the actors, you believed that they were real, what real people would say, you know, and how it would feel real. And what was so great about Bantoni Soir was, and many of her works actually, there's hardly any dialogue. Mm. She tells the story in the most cinematically pure way um, so emotionally resonant. She gets so much communication across, and with with just the you know hardly any dialogue at all, especially in that film. And I remember seeing that movie and thinking to myself, well, I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> I could write a script like that, and it was so simple and pared down, and it was a single night, and it was just two characters, and it just it just seemed. So so doable, you know, for me. I, I mean, I really I connected with it so much as an artist. Like I felt like, well, that's like, you know, I don't know. I, I it was it was incredibly inspiring. And then finding out again in that same evening, uh, the the age she was, I remember thinking to myself, okay, I have, you know, I've. For three more years, or four more years, or whatever it was, you know, um, I think I was 37. So I think it was like, okay, I have three more years to make my first speech to start <laughs> my career, you know. And sure enough, I was 39 when I got my bizarrely lucky opportunity to make my first feature. I was basically commissioned to write and direct a feature film. Oh, wow. Insane, insanely lucky. Um, because there was this very short lived, uh, beautiful visionary nonprofit film studio that popped up in Seattle for this brief, you know, shining moment. And I was one of the, um, one of the lucky directors who was offered this opportunity. And I, you know, to, and I was like, I don't know, I don't know any crew. I don't know any, you know, I don't know about them. They were like, don't worry about any of that. We got it all covered. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> Think of the idea. So, and that was it. Like I, I made that first feature. I remember being on the set and just thinking, wow, I know I'm never going to make a piece of art alone again. I know that, you know, I, I'm willing to, um, trade in my sort of control freak micromanaging (laughs) ways, uh, trade that in for a truly beautiful, you know, collaborative, um, just liberating, exhilarating experience that is, that is, um, feature filmmaking. So she really, um, was kind of this incredibly important inspiration point for me. Um, and looking at her work again, you know, I was able to revisit some of her films cause it's been a few years since I've seen them. And it, I was actually really surprised and excited to see that we really do have, I felt, I felt a real, um, overlap. You know, there are certain things that, certain things that keep us very distant. (laughs) Um, I I feel like, you know, I, it's really, humor is incredibly important to me. So I like to have a lot of humor in my movies that she just doesn't give a shit about humor. You know, there are occasional laughs, but it really is. uh, She's just very, you know, and, and I feel like her films, she's just much more unflinching about the darkness of humanity and like Mm. the Oh, I just my God, oh, there's this grittiness and rawness, and you know, yeah, just really clear-eyed, unflinchingness that she, uh, this approach, you know, that she has, that I feel like she's a braver filmmaker in a lot of ways, or, or you know, there's a, yeah, anyway, but. But I do. But, you know, like, for instance, my ed- little things like my editor is constantly mocking me because <laughs> I, I love hands. I really love hands. I find <laughs> them incredibly expressive. And when I have the camera, which I have, you know, I've held the camera in, in a lot of my work, um, not not the last couple, but like Hump Day and um, Microwave Brilliance. And uh, uh, occasionally I, I will like focus in on hands. I find them just to be as as expressive, you know, as faces in a lot of ways. And he's just like, what is, what is it with you? With this hands are all direct, you know, my, and, and she does it a lot too. You know, she's, she's totally interested in bodies and space in mm-hmm. faces, but also she'll go, you know, she'll go from faces down to hands all the time. And I'm like, Oh my God, that's so me. Like I do that all the time, you know? And then I know I just watched rewatched Neneta Boni, which is, I think possibly my favorite ever works. So I just, I really have a soft spot for it. And at the end of the movie, so open-ended, like that movie ended and my husband said, you know, well, what's going to happen, do you think, when, you know, when she goes back home to her brother, you know, and I was like, she's not going home, you know, and I mm. realized, I was like, that's the, oh my God, I love to do the same thing. You let the audience write their own ending, you know, I think, I just think that I love endings like that. So I felt a real affinity there too. So, oh my God, I feel like I've talked straight for about 10
0: minutes. No, that's, that's, that's awesome. perfect. No, the, uh, no, you're right about <laughs> About the endings, I can certainly see the the parallels there because I did feel, you know, your sister sister in particular ended at I, I think I said in my review ended at the exact right nanosecond, and uh, a lot of her um, a lot of Denise work ends at just the perfect moment where there is this massive question mark, and that's that's ideal. Like uh, what, what's the um, thirty five shots of rum. Another question mark where you can either go, oh, it's such a happy ending or, oh, my God, what a depressing ending. And (laughs) it says more about you than it does the film. Completely.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I do. I get that all the time with your sister, sister, where some people get it like you did and just and understand that we tortured over the exact right frame, you know, to find Mm. the exact frame on which to end. And, and a lot of people will say, Oh my God, I love the movie so much. I really, the ending pissed me off so bad. Like why did you end it like that? And I really want to just ask them like, how did you really, like how would you have ended that movie? You know? I mean, I I just feel like why would you want to, I guess it's because people, you know, some people really want it to just be handed to them, like tied up with a bow and handed to them. Mm -hmm. Um, and like a closed circle. And to me, I want to, I want to give the sense that we're just dropping in on these people's lives for a little while and then their their life will keep going it's a river you know instead of it being the end of of a you know i don't know i just i really love that sense of of things moving on beyond beyond the edges of the, of the narrative that you're presenting. It
1: goes beyond that idea of, cre- you know, you're creating a construct, this film, this script, this story, where instead you're kind of like, well, this is a life that happened before we arrived and will continue after we leave. And it's, it feels much more organic and much more truthful.
2: Yes, and speaking of those qualities, I mean, my God, Denis just has them mm. in spades. They're such a beautiful... I had never seen white material And, and so I was very happy to be given the opportunity to visit it a couple of days ago. And, oh my Lord, what an amazing (laughs) film. I was utterly gripped the entire time. And, and, uh, (laughs) and in the middle of the movie, again, I watched it with my husband and he said, this is, this film is terrifying. (laughs) It really (laughs) is. So much tension, but my God, I mean, I was just, I've been talking about, you know, uh, how important it is to allow especially women you know there's i mean i've been getting a lot of doing a lot of interviews about this film that i just directed laggies and and one of the things that drew me to the script was it's a female protagonist who actually is allowed to be flawed and to make mistakes and to be fumbling towards her a sense of her own identity and to and to and to lie and to you know Mm. be be human i mean to be flawed is to be human and to be layered right and have and have and, and And women are so often, especially in Hollywood, they're forced into this box that I think comes from this fear of, you know, people really want women to be likable. And they think that that means, like when I say they, I mean whatever, the suits or the powers that be, they think that means that women have to be, you know, you have to smooth off all the rough edges and you have to make them not flawed. And And they end up being these, like, cardboard cutout facsimiles of what a human being, you know, the sort of Hollywood facsimile of, of a real human being. Mm. And so um, it's the men who are allowed to be flawed and the men who are allowed to actually fuck up and sort of, you know, make mistakes and, and be real, real human. And so it was, it was so nice to see a woman be able to be in this, in this role. And I think about it, Isabel uh role in, in white material and how, I've never seen a woman like her on screen and she's fearless Mm. and she is uh, obsessive and you admire her for her fearlessness and her, and her just like, she's so independent and completely self-sufficient. And then you find out she's also like completely screwed up her son because she's just been like controlling and she's blind to how screwed up, you know, he is and Mm -hmm. and then there's this unbelievable all these layers of I followed up white material with a revisit to Shakala. Yeah. And it's just, oh my God, like the the emotional resonance of how she from scene to scene, moment to moment, she's she is traversing this unbelievably nuanced emotional landscape between the dynamics between the black Africans and Mm -hmm. the white Europeans and their Uh, you know, and this, the examination of the, of the intimacy and, you know, the racism and the, the, Oh my God. I mean, it's just the whole, (laughs) it's unbelievable what she does. And again, all the time, completely unflinching like her, you know, she's just, she's very equal. Like the scales have fallen and she just shows everybody, you know, um, without any worry about, and there's just so many moments where you're just, squirming inside just going god is this really happening you know yeah uh, yeah and just
0: reveals so much about human nature going from talk what we were talking about before with auteurs and you know the recognizable styles is in addition to you know those fantastic endings and these interesting characters and the and the hands and the faces as you say uh she was uh, like, Denis herself was born in Paris but grew up in colonial French Africa. You know, her family moved from Burkina Faso to Somalia, Senegal, Cameroon. And this idea of this sort of uh, constant battle between the colonists and, and the original inhabitants is informs every single one of her films, even the ones that are set in Paris.
2: Mm. Yes, yes. Well, and occasionally, I mean, like, Nenette Ebony was Ebony is kind of a, I guess, an exception because... Um, if you look at, is it no fear, no die with the cockfighting? Yes. Yes. Oh my God. So that one I couldn't rewatch because, uh, they only had it on VHS at my local video store. Um, so I, (laughs) but I wanted to visit, I'm going to go to my friend's house who has a VHS player and watch it again. Because I remember when I saw it, they brought it as part of a retrospective. So I saw it a few years ago and I remember just being really, really struck by that one. And, um, yes, that one's set in Paris, but, um, again, yes, totally informs the story and the characters and the relationships. Um, and, yeah, if you, if you look at what she does, I, just, I guess, through her settings, and also genre, too, because she... I will, I will completely confess that I wasn't able to... I'm, I'm a bit of a, of a wimp, you know? Like, hmm. I, I can go as far as white material. I was, like, willing to... Yeah. I was right there with her, but... when I thought I this was her, coming. The one, yeah. With I just couldn't. I haven't watched it, and I probably never will watch the one.
0: <laughs> is it is with, this Friday night?
1: And the, no, no sorry, this is no. 2001's Trouble Every Trouble Day. Trouble Every Day. Trouble
2: yes. Every Day. Yes, exactly. That's the one. I cannot. I cannot go there, people. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's braver or you know whatever darker. Just I can't. There's su- certain things about human nature. <laughs> yeah. Certain places dark pockets of the human soul that I'm not willing to go to um I don't I don't know if it's a thing to do with my cuz I do feel like I've had less and less ta- ability as I've gotten older to to deal with it but anyway, did you? I assume you guys saw it. I'm curious yeah. to hear your thoughts about that one.
0: Well, Paul, you saw it a few years ago. I was uh, almost dreading watching it because I remembered your reaction was quite. You were quite affected by it.
1: Yeah, I, I, look, it's changed considerably since I've revisited it. But I saw it when I was about 26, and it just I felt actual revulsion, um, and I'm. I love gory films. I, I love horror movies. I lo- I'm, I'm totally down for all of that sort of stuff. But I saw this, and it just really pushed my buttons in the worst way. And I just hated it. Revisiting it this time, I was much more struck by the, the, the weird beauty of it. Like I still think, in some ways, it's uneven. But some, but at its best, it's really quite poetic. And um also yes incredibly horrific but not nearly as horrific as i'd found it when i was younger which is weird it's a weird inversion of your journey lynn <laughs>
2: also you you had probably built it up more and you were more um prepared the second time you know because mm. you'd already seen it you knew that you'd had this extreme reaction and so you had it in your head that it was going to be this horrible experience to rewatch it and i'm sure that helped to Soften the blow, doesn't
1: it? Yeah, yeah, just a bit.
0: I agree. With, I, I agree with what you said about it being the weirdly beautiful. That's pretty much what I've got uh, my first reaction to it as well. But I, I, I loved Trouble Every Day because it felt like uh, the other side of one of my favourite films, um, Soderbergh's Sex Lies and Videotape. You know, that's a film about uh, sexuality, but people who can't connect physically. And this is like the other end of that. This is people who can't connect enough, who take that idea of animal attraction through to its ultimate horrific conclusion. And I really loved that.
2: Wow. Yeah. Well, again, oh my God, talk about unflinching. Jesus freaking... Mm,
0: yeah.
2: <laughs> um. there, there,
1: there's one incredible shot with Beatrice Dahl walking naked by this wall, covered in blood. The wall is covered in blood. And it's like this. It's like she's painted the wall with this person's blood. Um, this, like, mm-hmm. giant bird-like <laughs> picture behind her. And she's just kind of sauntering um, in the centre of it. And it's, yeah, it's such a striking image. And Denise films always have this striking uh, imagery, whether it's that, whether it's uh, Denis Lavon, um dancing his heart out to um, Rhythm of the Night at the end of Beau Travail. Yeah,
2: exactly, yeah. Um, well... It- again, in, I feel like in all her films, um, some more than others, but in, there are these long stretches with no dialogue which make... And, and, and yet, she's communicating so, so, so much. Um, and I do feel like there's a purity to that because, because there's, that's something that only, only cinema can do mm-hmm. to, to, really, you know, to convey um, all this depth and you know, these layers of Emotion, but also um, sense of visceral quality, right? So you really, the sense of place is so profound in each of her films. Like you really feel like you've been to West Africa, you've been to Algeria, you've been to Marseille, you know, and through sound design and through the way that she uses the camera and the time and space she gives you.
1: um,
2: You know, she's not sort of hurried along by conventions of a tight Uh, you know, momentum, narrative momentum, you know, which is something that I, I struggle with myself. I feel like I really, I really love that kind of, of filmmaking, Mm -hmm. um, that kind of um, experience, you know, as a viewer. But I also, I love narrative. I love feeling like keeping the audience on the edge of their seat and for myself included, like what's going to happen next, you know, and, and sort of, so I do tend to, uh, veer a little more, I think, towards a, um, with a, a tightly told, you know, um, uh, tightly edited film, sure. um, and not wasting, you know, uh, is it one too many frames here, you know? So it, it's, it's really inspiring and, and just wonderful to kind of luxuriate in her, in her films. Yeah. People are allowed to just on the screen smoking and, you know, (laughs) being in a space or like on the motorcycle, like Mm. air sort of lifts up her arms and you feel the breeze and you feel the, it's just, you know, and, or whether it's an urban space or, you know, in this particular language and, and um, the air of a place, which I just, it's really um, that's that sense of setting, I think is incredibly important.
0: Mm, I, I couldn't agree with that more. Like that's, that's one of my favorite things that a filmmaker has is that sense of place. And I find that in her films, no matter how uncomfortable they get or, or, or horrific, I want to keep staying in that world. Cause I feel so, uh, this, this intense visceral connection to it.
2: Yeah. Even when, even when it's a really, un- I mean like the African places are for the most part, I think she, she, it's, it's, a, a, I don't know. I feel more of a sense of wanting to be there and, and understanding the attraction, you know, even Isabel Oupierre's character, who's just like, get the hell out of there. What <laughs> yeah. are you doing? And she's so obsessed and just can't leave, but you understand it. Like are you understand you at the same time, you were like, just understand it. Cause it's just so exquisite and so beautiful. But, um, well, I-, I would
0: put my life on the line for coffee as well. So I understood. <laughs> <laughs> oh, why not? Yeah. Right. Okay. Um,
2: But like, I just, the last one I watched was, was, uh, and the one in Marseille, Ninette Eboni. And it's, I've never been to Marseille, but my God, it just seems, you can smell the smog and the, it's so industrial and so kind of ugly and gritty, you know, um, or even the, the underbelly of Paris that's in, in, um, No Fear, No Die. It, Mm. this isn't a particularly, it's not an idealized romanticized, spot right these these spots that she that she dives into are often really kind of unpleasant but again because you you feel like um it's just so real i don't know it's like you you know i don't yeah i don't i guess i'm just saying i'm not sure how long i want to would, would want to be in this spot. <laughs>
1: that, was, that was the thing i was i was noticing watching her early films is i don't think i've seen anyone shoot france or paris less romantically
2: yes exactly which i love i actually try to do that with my own city as much as I love Seattle, I also don't, I'm, I don't want to, you know, as an insider, as a local, I don't want to show the the places you've already seen again and again in the Hollywood versions, mm. you know, in the sleepless in Seattle sort
1: of again, idealized, you know. Again with the space needle, you know. Yeah, exactly.
2: Although I did break my own rule in this last film (laughs) and feature it quite prominently in one shot. But it's only because (laughs) I was trying to zero in on, on, you know, trying to take people from point A to point B in it. Unfortunately, this one wedding scene happens right underneath the Space Needle. I this- <laughs> <laughs> so was like, uh, I guess I could try to, you know, paint it out of the shot, but I don't think that's going to happen.
0: Yeah. I find uh, well, something else you have in common with Claire Denis is both being uh, inspired by Ozu because her influences are really interesting. Like 35 Shots of Rum was a combination of being inspired by Ozu's late spring and the relationship between her own mother and, and grandfather. And uh, Beau travail was inspired by, this, this is incredible, not just her personal life of being a white French person in Africa, but also Herman Melville's 1888 novella Billy Budd, and it's also a semi-sequel to Goddard's uh, Le Petit Soldat, with M- Michael Subor playing the same character. And these incredibly disparate elements all come together to make what what I feel is her masterpiece.
2: Yeah. Yes. I, I, many, many, I know, many agree with you. For some reason, Beau is the one that I can't quite, it's not my favorite of her films, I, I I feel more at a distance from it. I don't know. I don't know why that is. Um, I guess I understand why people uh, love it so much, but it's for me just on that personal gut level. You know, I don't I don't connect to it in that same way. And maybe it's just because maybe it's purely because it's so male.
0: <laughs> yeah, sure.
2: Which I which I love about her. You know, there's yeah. this uh, uh, a lot of talking about. Is it called the Bechdel test? Yes. Yeah. So there's a lot of, um, a lot of chatter in uh, the States right now about, and maybe throughout the entire, you know, sort of independent film community, but that seems, anyway, um, it, I know in Europe there really isn't an independent film. <laughs> <laughs> there's no such thing. But um, that there's a lot of talk about how there's so few women-directed films, especially in the studio system, more in the independent realm. But there's also a, a, a lack of uh, female protagonists, um, and, and this sort of, you know, films that t- pass this test where I believe it's like, you know, there has to be some three dimensional female characters and they actually have to be able to have a conversation for a certain duration that has nothing to do with any men and, you know, mm. and there's, <laughs> but, um, it's, so I've been sort of feeling guilty because I look, I'm equally attracted to female and male protagonists. And I want to explore territory with characters of, of, you know, both sexes. And I feel guilty about it. I feel like, oh, I need as a, as a feminist filmmaker, like I need to really feature more women and make sure, you know, um, that, mm. that I, I do that. And so when I come up with an idea that really features men, I'm like, oh, is that bad? You know? But then I realized, you know, the most interesting thing for me was when um, there was a, a, the French, a French company remade my film Hump Day. And Ivan Atal was the, um, actually Cluse, Francois Cluse was in it as well, which was really another wow. really bizarre overlap when I saw, re rewatched Chocolat. I was like, oh my God, I didn't realize it was in <laughs> <laughs> Um, and it was called Do Not Disturb and it was never released in the States, unfortunately, but, um. I got a chance to see it and Ivan Atal was so beautiful um, in that he was a, he reached out to me and said, ah, I'm taking your baby and you're probably very nervous. (laughs) You know, he's so sweet and communicative. And he said, I'm, you know, very, I'm really staying faithful to your, your movie, but I'm actually um, going to change a few things. And it's really because uh, it's the French version. You know, And so I need to do these things because it's for a French audience. And when I saw the movie, I had that in my head, like, okay, this is like, he's going to do things differently in some moments because it's French. And I realized, no, it's not just because it's French. It's because he's a guy. And it was so fascinating to me to see the difference between his treatment of the material and my treatment of the material. And it really, you really get to see the, you know... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what this movie is like being made by a woman as versus being made by a man. And I realized no matter what uh, the content is or who the characters are, I'm always going to be approaching it from a feminist point of view, you know, whatever the, is. Mm-hmm. so that sort of made me feel like, you know what? I just can't be held. To, and then you think about Catherine Bigelow and, you know, and again, Claire Denis, you know, it's like, I want to I want to explore all of, of humankind, you know, sure.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, Denise does that. Like her last two films, White Material and, and Bastards. You know, one is centered on a woman, and the next is centered on a man. And you know, she she seems to you know I'm reading a bit into her motivations here, but she she doesn't seem to have any qualms about uh, just doing whatever comes naturally to the story.
2: Exactly, and and has an equally keen eye and a keen sense for um, gen, you know, uh, whoever whatever the gender of the character is. Mm. And she definitely explores i think male and female um again to, i mean the not, not to continually bring it back to my favorite of her films neto bonique, but it feels like you're in this teenage, this you know pubescent space with this this boy uh, brother and sister, but especially the brother Gregor collin's um <laughs> character is just so he's such a um he's such a teenage boy. And with again, unflinchingly. So like <laughs> to the point of just like, Oh my God, <laughs> he's so self-centered and he's so, he's such a bastard and he's so upset, obs- sexually obsessed and obscene. And, yeah. but you know, you feel like you're getting the whole picture of this kid. Like it's, this is what it's like, you know, if not every boy, but like you really, really believe him, you know? Um, and, uh, and then one of the sexiest scenes ever of this, like, and hysterically funny too, where he's sort of like making love to this dough, this olive <laughs> yes. dough. So <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Unbelievable. I'd totally forgotten about that scene. Oh my
0: God. Anyway, just. It's so uh, American I'm, Pie is a remake of yes. uh, <laughs> Nanette
1: and Bonnie. <laughs> there you go. I think we've just worked out why Nanette and Bonnie speaks the most to you, Lynn. It's probably the funniest <laughs> of her films. Yeah. I think,
2: I think that's what it is, and i and I have to say the the shot of him holding the bunny rabbit and peeing <laughs> it's just so charming and so like completely out of the box and unlike anything I've ever seen, but again, not just to be doesn't just feel like whimsy or, you know, I'm going to make this quirky image, you know, it felt completely organic. I completely bought it, you know, and that's, that's the other thing I really admire about her is there's never a false note. She comes up with these unexpected scenes and twists and turns and, you know, examines people in, in unusual ways, but it never, it never feels contrived. It never feels false ever.
0: Absolutely. And, and I, I love that she seems to be getting edgier as she goes on. You know, I use that word very sparingly, but uh, so many filmmakers tend to lose their edge as they get older, and she actually seems to be sharpening it, which I really like.
2: It's uh, exactly, it's so admirable.
0: Fantastic. Well, Lynn, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Oh, my God, thank you so much for having me and for for giving me this assignment, which has just turned out to be <laughs> the most inspiring because I haven't I haven't watched so many of these films before uh, or, or in so long and then White Material was the one I got to view for the first time, which just think it may be the top of my list now. I mean it just is so masterly the way she approached that oh my god. Yeah, so thanks so much. And it's been so fun to talk to you guys about her too.
1: Thank you, you too. so much. And we'll see the rest of you next month. No, I'm not an American. I'm an infomania.